The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What copyright law protects is the exploitation of expression. So from the standpoint of the technologists, uh, this looks like uh, what we're doing is very much like what Google did. And, you know, Google was doing it from research library collections. We're doing it from the open Internet. And web scraping is just something that people do all the time. Uh, and therefore, it must be fair use because it's been allowed for years and years. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 17th, 2023. The only thing more impressive than the performance of generative AI systems like GPT-4 and Stable Diffusion is just the sheer volume of training data that goes into these systems. GPT was trained on, reportedly, what is essentially the entire internet, while Stable Diffusion and other image generation models rely on hundreds of millions, if not billions, of existing pieces of artwork. Of course, much of this content is copyrighted, and the authors and artists whose work is being used to train these models, and potentially to threaten their own livelihoods, they're paying attention. A number of high-profile lawsuits are making their way through the courts, and the outcome of these cases could hugely shape, and maybe even stop, progress in machine learning. To explore these issues, I spoke with Pam Samuelson, who is the Richard M. Sherman Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley and one of the pioneers in the study of digital copyright law. She's just published a new piece in the journal Science titled Generative AI Meets Copyright, in which she analyzes the current litigation around generative AI and where it might lead. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 17th, Pam Samuelson on Copyright's Threat to Generative AI. Let me start by asking a, a very general question, since we don't usually have much cause to discuss issues of copyright law and lawfare. So both for my sake as a non-copyright law specialist, and also for the sake of our audience, what is the core idea behind copyright law? The idea is that people often need incentives to be creative, um, to create books uh, or music or other things. And if they want to make a living uh, from their creations, uh, they need to be able to have some exclusive rights, uh, at least for some period of time. And copyright essentially allows the original works of authorship to be protected uh, from the moment they're first fixed in a tangible medium under U.S. law. And so essentially every photograph you take and every grocery list you, uh, you write, um, the copyright kind of attaches to it automatically. Obviously, those are not things that t typically are commercially valuable, but uh, nevertheless, copyright attaches to them. And when they are commercially valuable, then copyright law gives the owner of the rights uh, an ability to control 
the commercial exploitations of their works. When somebody creates something that in fact is commercially valuable, then they have the exclusive right to, uh, to in fact exploit the work and to uh, authorize people to make derivative works of the, of their creations. Um, and that way, if you create something valuable, uh, you get, a, you get the commercial benefits uh, from it. And that's uh, something that Lots of people who are professional writers, professional musicians, professional coders uh, care about quite a lot. And, and this, please correct me if I'm wrong, this is a right that attaches automatically. So you don't have to actually write on your grocery list or your photograph or your whatever, that little C with a circle, right? This is copyrighted. This is just a thing that attaches because you wrote it and then or you created it and then you get whatever rights that come with that. Yes, that's exactly right. So now we've established sort of the idea behind copyright law. At a high level, what is the potential conflict between copyright law on the one hand and generative AI on the other hand? Since, of course, the whole idea, hopefully, behind generative AI is that it's creating new works. It's not just reproducing existing works. So the biggest issue for uh, a lot of professional uh, writers and other kind of people who are professional creators is that the generative AI is trained on data, and where does the, uh, where is there a lot of data? It's out there on the internet, uh, and so if a photographer has put up some of his, its his images on the internet, uh, or a blog uh, is up on the internet, it's probably going to be used uh, as training data for some of these generative AI systems. Uh, there are sites, for example, which have a lot of digital visual art. And one of the lawsuits involves uh, visual artists basically claiming that you ingested our work as training data. Uh, and um, the reason that it's the, that you can mid-journey and the other generative AI image systems uh, generate really nice images is because of the quality of the images that you used as training data. Uh, and so even if the output uh, is not a really close resemblance to the, the input data, the quality of the output uh, is due to the quality of the inputs. And so uh, the big issue is really about uh, ingesting works uh, as training data. Uh, and of course, a lot of the professional writers and graphic artists and so forth are worried about the competition between what they charge money for uh, and what you can get for, let's say, 20 bucks uh, if you use one of these generative AI systems. Uh, so they're worried, you know, the screenwriters uh, strike, for example, is worried about the use of generative AI uh, by the studios to kind of write scripts about this, that, or the other thing. And they're worried that they won't have a job anymore, or at least that, uh, that they won't be paid as much uh, for scripts that they might contribute to. So the sort of the job loss uh, issues uh, loom large for a lot of the professional creators. Intuitively, I, I understand the argument that using copyrighted works for training data might cause an issue. But at the same time, what is the difference between a 
generative AI system using this uh, as training data and me, for example, using this as training data, right? There's that famous, probably apocryphal, but it's so good. It's kind of too good to check and quote from uh, Pablo Picasso that good artists imitate and great artists steal. We are all in a sense, uh, you know, recombination engines of stuff that's gone before us. That's how we learn to paint or write or make music or code or write law review articles. So presumably I can't be sued just because I used a bunch of people as my training data. So why can a generative AI system? Well, I think that the people who design these systems believe that if you take data from the open internet, you scrape data from the open internet, that uh, you aren't hurting anybody. Uh, you are uh, using it not to... Uh, essentially exploit the expression in the work. What you're doing is kind of decomposing the works into uh, very small units, which the the computer scientists call tokens. Uh, and you tokenize things uh, in a way that uh, allows for computational uses and to really trying to understand the sort of what words are likely to be next to what words. Um, and uh, so their view is that this is a lot like uh, the Google Books case. In that case, uh, the Authors Guild uh, sued Google for digitizing millions of in-copyright books from research library collections. And the courts eventually found that that was fair use because Google wasn't trying to exploit the expression, and you couldn't essentially get uh, enough expression from the books to essentially supplant demand for the original. And if you couldn't supplant demand, if you were just using it for computational purposes, uh, then you weren't exploiting expression. And what copyright law protects is the exploitation of expression. So from the standpoint of the technologist, uh, this looks like uh, what we're doing is very much like what Google did. And, you know, Google was doing it from research library collections. We're doing it from the open internet. And web scraping is just something that people do all the time. Uh, and therefore, it must be fair use because it's been allowed for years and years. What are the main cases that you're tracking in this wave of litigation? And sort of where are they in the process? And, and do you have any uh, sense of, of how they're going to resolve, or is it sort of too early to know? Boy, I think it's really too early to know um, in all the cases, but I counted uh, that there are now 10 uh, lawsuits. The ones that I'm following the most closely are the Getty Images versus Stability case. There's one filed in the U.S. and one filed in the U.K., um, again, about the stable diffusion and uh, about the training data and outputs uh, as infringement. Um, similar claims in the Anderson class action lawsuit uh, against stability. And the same lawyer is handling the Anderson case and the Doe versus GitHub case, which is about uh, co-pilot. Uh, so it's about software, not about visual art. Uh, and then uh, just in the last uh, week or so, there's been... Uh, three new lawsuits, two against OpenAI uh, and one against Meta uh, based on books. Uh, so there's lots, lots of stuff going on. But these are the, these are the main cases. Um, there's also uh, another case um, that's more focused on privacy issues, 
which uh, is also against open AI. But uh, I think the copyright cases are the ones that are of greatest interest. Is your sense that the companies that have developed these uh, generative AI systems, are they surprised? I mean, did this catch them off guard or was this inevitable and they understood it and they decided, well, it's just the cost of doing business and building these amazing technologies is that we're just going to have to deal with this when this comes down the pike? I don't think it was a complete surprise. Um, what you have uh, with OpenAI and with Meta are companies that are have very high valuations uh, and they're doing something uh, that's quite novel. Uh, and uh, it certainly has, I think, probably surprised them just how angry uh, some of the visual artists and some of the authors, professional authors groups uh, have been uh, attacking uh, them. But the lawsuits, I think, not a huge surprise. But I, I'm sure that the companies, Microsoft, OpenAI, and uh, Meta, uh, have had to do some risk analysis, uh, and uh, they wouldn't have gone forward with these projects if they didn't think they had a pretty strong case. And in terms of that risk analysis, what is the range of, of outcomes in these cases? I mean, obviously, one possibility is the courts find that there are no copyright issues. The other possibility is that the courts find that there are some copyright issues, and then there's this question of what the, the remedy is. Mm-hmm. Um, in those cases in particular, are we looking at you know, it's going to cost them some money, but it's not that big of a deal. Or are we looking at, wow, this could this could stop generative AI in its tracks because obviously without the training data, these models are useless. So I think the biggest threat for them is that the courts decide that the training data copying uh, is infringement and then orders the destruction of the models. That would be... Uh, that would be something really amazing, but it is quite possible as an outcome. Courts have the uh, have the authority uh, to impound and destroy, order impoundment and destruction of things that are that are copyright infringements. Uh, so I'm not I'm not predicting that that would be an outcome. It may be that that uh, that damages uh, would suffice, uh, but you know the. The OpenAI lawsuit involving uh, GitHub, that complaint uh, asked for $9 billion. And, you know, I mean, Microsoft has $9 billion, but $9 billion is a lot of money. Fair use, the, the concept of fair use, is likely to be a major defense from AI companies. And so I, I'd like you to sort of explain again, generally the idea behind fair use and also how it's likely to apply in in these cases and what parts of fair use in particular are likely to be most relevant. So the copyright statute in the United States says that fair uses of copyrighted works are not infringements. It directs courts to take certain factors into account in making a, a, a fair use decision. So what purpose did the putative fair user have when making uh, use of an existing work? What's the nature of the copyrighted work? How much was used? And what kind of effect does that have on the market for or value of the work? Uh, And let's go back to the Authors Guild v. Google case for a minute, because that's the closest analog to uh, the generative AI fair use cases. Uh, So 
what was the purpose of Google's scanning uh, millions of in-copyright books from research library collections. It was to create a database uh, so that it could engage in computational uses of the, uh, of the books and the contents of the books, including for enabling snippets to be created of content. So if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for information about uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, you can ask a question in Google's search engine and you get a little snippet from a book that talks about the, the city of Buffalo. And maybe that will satisfy your curiosity. Maybe you just wanted to know what the population of the city is and you can get that kind of information through Google book search. Um, so the purpose was quite different than the purpose for which the books were initially marketed. So the court decided that that meant that when it was done for a different purpose, it wasn't competing with the book as a commodity. Uh, it was allowing uh, people to get information uh, and allowing Google to be able to make information available uh, to people and that that was actually a positive thing. So the court said, you know, the purpose was transformative because it was a different purpose. Uh, the nature of the copyrighted works, they were old books in the research library collections, but the court didn't give very much weight to that. Now, generally speaking, if you copy the whole thing, that doesn't necessarily turn out to be a good thing, right? It usually cuts against fair use. But if you want to index the contents of books, and if you want to be able to uh, serve up snippets, you in fact have to copy the whole thing. Uh, and so the court basically decided that that was reasonable uh, in light of the purpose. And uh, the court said, no, there's no harm to the market for the books because Google basically isn't serving up ads next to the snippets. Uh, it just, uh, in fact, has links to places where you can buy the books uh, that snippets are shown of. And so they're not undermining the market for the book because they're not really supplanting demand for uh, purchases of the books. Uh, and so the court kind of on balance decided that that was uh, a fair use. And uh, there will be similar kinds of arguments made uh, by OpenAI and uh, by stability uh, that G you know, my purpose is very different than the purpose of the original. And the works are creative, but not, uh, you know, you put them up on the open internet. Uh, and so that makes them fair, uh, fair game. Again, you copy the whole thing, but that's necessary if you want to be able to essentially create these language models or image models. Uh, and, you know, as long as I'm not spitting out something that's uh, substantially similar uh, to any particular uh, input of the training data, then it probably should be fair use. That's the kind of argument they're, they're going to be making. Now, again, uh, you know, I think the Getty Images case is, uh, is one that's going to be a little tougher uh, for stability to win because Getty Images says, hey, I've got a licensing program for making my photographs available as training data. And so you're interfering with a market opportunity that I have. Uh, and so that's going to be, I think, a big issue in that particular case. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, one of the factors you pointed to in the in the Google Book case was the idea that the the output of that was not really going to compete in a meaningful way with the authors of those books. And so that's one thing that would cut in favor of a fair use determination. It does seem in this case, though, that you have a lot of really worried artists and coders and musicians who are not claiming that their work is directly going to compete with them. Obviously, it's going to be transformed, but that the output or the the outcome, which are these incredible models, um, are going to basically drive the costs of this creative work down to you know to very low amounts, and therefore they're going to be priced out of the market essentially. And that there's sort of a further irony that they are in in a sense the kind of agents of their own destruction because of course it's their content uh, that's being used against them. Does does that seem like a, a meaningful difference to you between these cases and the, the the Google Books indexing case? Well, that's certainly what some of the professional writers and visual artists are 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 arguing and. I have some sympathy with that, but remember, uh, advances in technology have made lots of creations possible that, you know, that compete now. So professional photographers, for example, uh, today are having a tougher time because, uh, the quality of the images that we are all able to generate, even on our phones, the quality of those images makes it possible for people to uh, essentially use Creative Commons instead of hiring uh, a professional photographer for for certain kinds of images that they want to be able to use on their uh, websites or for ads or whatever. Uh, and so it does seem to me that lots of tools to uh, make uh, fan fiction and the like essentially means that there's kind of more competition that isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, you know, um, there's a kind of democratization of creation, which uh, overall is probably a net positive in terms of copyright policy. You know, what is the purpose of copyright? It is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. That is to say, to encourage the creation and dissemination uh, of original works of authorship and, all of those works of authorship build on pre-existing works. Uh, and so, you know, there's, what we care about is the ongoing progress, not protecting uh, particular people's jobs. So, you know, if the outputs are substantially similar to particular inputs, uh, that's actually something that copyright law would treat as an infringing copy or an infringing derivative work. 
but very often what's going to be outputted is going to be something that's very different from any particular input. Uh, and insofar as that's true, that's not something copyright law has done before. So and it has not extended that far. So the Anderson lawsuit, for example, claims that every image that's outputted by stable diffusion is uh, an infringing derivative work because uh, it essentially is derived from the training data, which is derived from the images that were copied uh, in the course of the training data. Um, and that's just a stretch from a, from the standpoint of copyright law. Now, again, Congress is going to be having hearings about this. The Copyright Office uh, has already had a series of listening sessions uh, in which people who uh, have ideas about what copyright law should do about these generative AI systems you know, they heard some criticism, uh, they heard some praise, uh, and uh, they will be having a notice of inquiry sometime this summer and asking people for comment, uh, and then probably writing a report sometime later this year or early next year, and making recommendations to Congress. And I know in Europe, one of the things that people are talking about is a possibility of some sort of collective license, uh, so that uh, so that creators can uh, get some compensation uh, for the use of their works as training data. But when we're talking about the stable diffusion uh, was trained on, on a data set of, I think, 600 million images, like, how are you going to get, you know, 25 cents to each of 600 million authors? And where are they? And how do you get them? Uh, get the money to them. So it's not, it's not going to be an easy thing to uh, solve through a collective license, but that's another one of the issues that Congress will probably uh, have to contend with. So you just mentioned both Congress and Europe, which is very helpful because that's where I wanted to take this conversation next. Uh, so let me ask a few questions about that. You know, obviously we've been talking so far largely in the context of a judicial case and judicial doctrine, but, you know, it sounds like if there's going to be a comprehensive solution to this, it's going to come at least in part from the political branches, uh, Congress and the executive branch. So I was hoping you could, you could talk a little bit at a high level about what Congress and the executive branch's role is in setting out copyright law and copyright policy. And then as it applies in the case of generative AI, you know, what are the interventions that you'd expect you know, Congress and the executive branch to, to make, and in particular, what interventions you think they should make? Well, one of the things that Congress has done and will do is hold hearings um, and invite people to make some presentations. And there's already been one congressional hearing about generative AI, and I expect there will be uh, more in the future. But I'm going to be surprised if Congress does anything more than just hold hearings. Uh, the Copyright Office, uh, I think, is very focused uh, and very aware of the consternation uh, about generative AI that uh, has been raised by some author groups and by some visual artists and uh, also by some of the people in the music industry. Um, and so I think they're going to be pretty sympathetic to the concerns of the professional creators. Uh, at the same time, you know, they can make some pronouncements, um, but they, you know, courts are faced with 
cases that are pending. Um, and those cases are going to keep going unless the uh, motions to dismiss are granted. Um, there is actually one motion to dismiss in the Anderson case next week. So we'll see what happens with with that. But the Copyright Office can make a recommendation um, and it can offer an inter- its own interpretation of, of copyright law, uh, but courts may or may not find that uh, interpretation to be persuasive. So, you know, I think they will do a, a careful and thorough job because they realize that there is a great deal at stake here. Uh, but one of the things that's at stake is uh, U.S. competitiveness in the uh, in the international marketplace uh, for generative AI systems. And the Ministry of Justice in Israel, for example, has come, has published a paper essentially arguing that uh, ingesting in copyright works uh, is, for, as training data, is fair use and that there isn't infringement unless the output is uh, substantially similar. And that will attract some uh, investment in developing generative AI. Um, and Japan also has a very broad uh, exception to enable text and data mining, uh, and they too want to be leaders in the field of generative AI, and China wants to uh, also. And so there are, if the U.S. decides not to um, treat generative AI systems and training data as fair use, uh, then some companies will move their bases of operation uh, elsewhere. And so there's a kind of countervailing uh, interest for the United States uh, because generative AI right now is a big industry for the U.S. Uh, and U.S. firms are doing very well with it. And so, you know, you want the industries to be successful. Uh, and of course, there will be more generative AI systems developed in you know, the next three to five years. And it's not clear at this point what the legal situation is going to be. Um, I think the all the companies uh, who are defending these cases are well represented by uh, by good lawyers. Um, and so, you know, they will they will put up a good fight. But, you know, it will be up to the courts to, to really decide this, I think, more than Copyright Office and more than more than Congress. What about Europe's role in all of this? So you already mentioned that there are plans in Europe or proposals for a compensation system. I want to ask more generally about Europe and its effect in copyright policy in this space, in part because obviously Europe has been, I think, much more proactive when it comes to regulating technology over the last several years than the United States has been. And I think there's a perception, at least in in you know, some parts of tech policy that this is kind of Europe's world and we just live in it and that the, the Brussels effect is, you know, honestly more important than, than the, the DC effect. Um, and I'm curious if, if you agree with that and if so, sort of what you think the um, effects of whatever Europe is going to do um, will be on uh, the, the ecosystem of generative AI. Well, I think before generative AI was a thing, Europe uh, actually went through a copyright revision process uh, and decided uh, that uh, essentially ingesting copyright works for text and data mining purposes uh, should be lawful. So adopted two exceptions 
to copyright rules to enable text and data mining. One is for nonprofit research institutions. And if they do text and data mining uh, copying, that's actually completely exempt uh, from copyright liability. Uh, and it was based on that that a German research institution uh, essentially created essentially uh, a training data set um, of 5.8 billion kind of works uh, from the uh, open internet. Uh, and that, that, that database uh, is available on an open source basis uh, for anyone who wants to use it as training data. Uh, so that's exempt uh, from liability, as I understand it, under uh, European copyright law. There is a separate one for uh, non-research institutions, that is to say for companies and the like that might want to engage in text and data mining. So text and data mining uh, is also lawful uh, by, let's say, uh, commercial firms uh, such as Microsoft, but the, there's an opt-out allowance for that. So if you are a copyright owner and you don't want your work to be used for text and data mining purposes, you can opt out of the of the text and data mining regime, uh, and so that's the uh, that's the state of play in in Europe. And there are uh, there are definitely firms that are, that will opt out of text and data mining for commercial purposes. I'd like to finish our conversation by trying to synthesize the many very interesting legal and policy issues that we've we've talked about, and to ask you to the extent that you sort of have a, a view of what the quote-unquote right answer here is. In other words, you know, to the extent that's most compatible with existing law and also with the policy objectives of the copyright system, you know, if you were the judge in these cases, what would be the, the principles that you would a- apply and that you would want to see in whatever long-term settlement there is when it comes to these issues of copyright in the generative AI context? Well, I have sympathy with the concerns of many of the professional writers and visual artists. I think that one of the things that we are going to be contending with, not just for them, but more generally, uh, is that generative AI systems uh, and AI systems more generally uh, are going to displace jobs that people have had for a long time. So, you know, the co-pilot system that OpenAI and GitHub and Microsoft have uh, been promoting, you know, is a, a way to essentially automate the creation of new computer programs. And, you know, programmers have been making a lot of really good money uh, in the last uh, several decades. And, you know, their jobs are at risk too. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have to think about universal basic income uh, for people um, and finding ways for these uh, systems to be tools that we can use for our, our good purposes. Uh, so uh, the metaphor that, that GitHub and OpenAI have for this system that they uh, are promoting of Copilot that metaphor of co-pilot is, I think, a really powerful one. Um, obviously, it's a trademark for uh, OpenAI and GitHub, but 
what we'd like, I think, is for AI systems to be uh, our co-pilots, right, to help us uh, in the creation of new works and uh, not to displace us, but to make us more productive, uh, to make us able to create things uh, more quickly uh, and to be able then to spend more leisure time doing fun things. Uh, so that's the, that's the happy story out there. And I'm going to be surprised if generative AI uh, gets shut down, but uh, certainly there are people right now who are pretty intent on uh, trying to stop them. Uh, and I don't think that's a, uh, that's the perfect solution either. So, you know, I don't think that we're going to get a conclusive answer to these questions for at least three years, probably a little longer than that. I would guess that the Getty Images case will settle because that would be a sensible thing for stability to do. Uh, but um, these class action lawsuits uh, seem to me to be just too, too remote uh, from what copyright law has been able to handle so far. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking that the, the fair use defenses uh, that have been discussed uh, so far, they seem pretty plausible to me. And so, you know, I, that's not going to make a lot of people happy, but it, uh, it is something uh, which, you know, copyright can't solve all the problems of the world. Well, I think that's a good place to, uh, to end this. Thank you so much, Pam Samuelson, for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.